So I wanted to start with just echoing what Dan said last week when he opened. If you remember the way that he finished uh, what he was saying, he said um, a few things. The reason I wanted to repeat it was because I thought it was really important to frame what we're talking about um, in that way. So what he said was, God loves you. That God cares for you. That it's okay not to be okay. Here's some good news. No one expects you to have it all together. Good, right? Yeah? We're quite pleased. I'm certainly quite pleased about that. God loves you. I don't think Dan made a mistake when he repeated that, and I've repeated that without making a mistake. And so do we. Otherwise, we wouldn't be doing this. So if this series is all about self-care and well-being, what on earth does stewardship have to do with it? Just as a, a really brief aside, I'm aware that this word, well-being, has become a little bit of a buzzword in the world at large. In work, in other places, it's become a little bit of a thing that you just do to show that, you're, that you care. Uh, and that means that for some, it may carry some baggage that's a little bit unhelpful. And if that's you, because it's me, then can I just plea with you to just ignore that word and move past it? If it's helpful for you, great, fantastic. Hold on to it, use it to frame what we're talking about. But if it's not helpful, then just move past it. Because what we're really talking about here is being who we are created to be as the children of God. You see, the more that we're able to align our lives with God's plan for us as his children, the more that we flourish. The more content we become with who we are. And the more we find ourselves living well. Now, a lot of discussion on well-being in the wider world, and probably in this series as well, is quite rightly about ourselves. Uh, Focusing on self-care. It's an inward focus. How are we doing? But fundamental to our identity as children of God and as Christians is our care for that which is around us. And that's as good a reason as any to start our journey with a focus on stewardship. Now, I've developed a new appreciation in the op- in, for the opening chapters of Genesis over the last few years uh, as a blueprint of God's original plan for creation um, and also as a model for what the restoration will look like. Genesis carries some very clear calls to stewardship. 
So if we're looking at who we are as children of God, who we are meant to be, then we cannot ignore the importance of stewardship to our well-being. Now just before we look at Genesis, let's get a definition of stewardship so we all know what, uh, what, we're, what we're talking about here. So the definition I found is, it's the careful and responsible management of something entrusted to one's care. I like that. It's a good definition. It works. So let's just keep that in mind as we go through, uh, through this this afternoon. So let's get into Genesis 1. Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created the male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So there's two words in this passage that are of interest and that we need to make sure we properly understand before we can move forward. So the first is this one, kavash. I am reliably told. And it's rendered as subdue in the NIV and almost every other translation I could find. Its literal definition, if you look that up and dig into it, is quite severe, actually. It's all about treading down or beating down. Sounds a bit harsh. Now, I'm sure there are some who are happy with that uh, as a definition. But it's important when we're looking at texts like this that once we've looked in and once we've zoomed in, we also remember that we need to zoom out as well. And we need to look at that word, that verse in the wider context of the rest of Scripture and then also attempt to understand it in the light of our modern concept in our modern society because words now mean different things to what they meant a hundred years ago, let alone thousands of years ago. So we need to ask ourselves, does this still mean, is the sense that we're getting from this still served by the words that we've used to translate it? And I think possibly it's not quite the right way of interpreting it. Uh, so I have been quite bold here, and I've changed the word. Sack me later, it's fine. But I've suggested that we, a better word would be to tame, as in you would talk about taming an unruly garden or an allotment plot that's been overrun by weeds or got out of control. So what we now have is God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in, lum in number. Fill the earth and tame it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So now we come to the second word. Rada. Again, I'm reliably informed. Which is rendered in the NIV as rule. 
and also regularly translated as have dominion. So you may have either one of those two things. Again, if you look at the literal definition, it's quite severe. It talks about beating down or that sort of thing, treading down, which is, again, a little bit harsh, I think. So I think what, what's useful here is to take a wider view of Scripture and look at other places where this word rule is used. And what does it mean to be uh, for godly rule? What does godly rule look like? So the same word appears in Leviticus four times. Three of those times are encouragements not to rule over the Israelites ruthlessly. In 1 Kings 4.24, it talks of this word rule and peace in the same verse. Psalm 72 speaks of King Solomon's rule. And its characteristics of, the characteristics of his rule are that he will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. He will take pity on the weak and the needy and save the needy from death. He will rescue them from oppression and violence, for precious is their blood in his sight. So it seems that maybe this rule has a different nuance to maybe we would necessarily understand it. I'm put in mind, of course, of the events of this week. Um, I actually wrote the majority of this on Monday. <laughs> so one of the things I heard time and time again about the Queen is how people loved the way uh, that she embodied what it meant to rule with care and with love and with compassion. You know, her, her legacy is not how she subdued a nation or forced her subjects to do her will. Her legacy is about how she, about the good causes that she championed, about how she raised up public servants, about how she gave godly words of strength and encouragement in times of crisis and great difficulty. So perhaps I can suggest this. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and tame it. Take good care of, love, encourage and support the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and every living creature that moves on the ground. Okay. It's not perfect. I'm not Eugene Peterson. I am not N.T. Wright. But you get what I mean, right? You get the point. Now, the reason for starting in Genesis, of course, is that it's a blueprint for who God made us to be. God made us to be beings that are not only internally focused but also have an external focus that includes all of the many gifts that God has given us. So let's just take a moment's pause before we go any further to deal with the two elephants in the room. For many of you, I'm sure, when you heard the title of today's talk stewardship, you might have thought that I was going to talk about money. 
managing our finances and our attitude to giving. You might have assumed that I would use the parable of the tenants or the bags of gold or the minas, depending on your translation. It's often taught as a parable of, of sound financial stewardship. Put my teeth back in. Never mind that it's actually a parable about the kingdom of God and has very little to do with money. Now, obviously, it is important that we are responsible with our finances, that we are generous where we're able, and that if we are fortunate enough to be able to invest, we are careful about choosing to invest ethically and wisely. But when I was preparing for this Sunday, I felt it would be a real wasted opportunity to simply talk about budgeting and a healthy attitude to giving. Despite the way it dominates our lives, because we all need to live, right? And the world seems to think that money is the most important thing. So it dominates our lives. But it's only a small part of what it means to be a steward in the eyes of God. So elephant number two. Literal elephants this time. Some may have immediately gone to the environment. And our responsibility to the planet climate change, the animal kingdom. This is very understandable, especially given the verse that I've just started with. And of course, we should be caring for this world. We should take care of the environment and do all we can to reduce our negative impacts on climate change. I want to commend, he's not here today, but I want to commend and thank Colin for what he did last week in bringing that video as part of our worship, because it is really important that we join with that and that we support those sorts of efforts. But it is only a part, again, of what it means to be good stewards. Now, I don't, say, I don't single out these two things because I want to reduce their importance at all, but more because I want to raise up the importance of some of the other things that we're called to be stewards of and to broaden our understanding of what it means to be stewards. So what makes me say that this issue is more about more than just money and the environment? Well, I went to 1 Peter 4 verse 10. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Now, this is a circular letter by Peter written to the churches in Asia Minor. Uh, they were Gentile churches. It's an encouragement to those Christians that, though they may suffer for their faith, they are part of the family of God and one with all believers in the hope of a world reborn by God's love. It's important because the story doesn't go God's plan broken forever. It goes, God's plan, brokenness, Jesus, God's plan. See, verses like 1 Peter 4.10 and 1 Corinthians 4.1 update our ideas on, of stewardship to encompass all that God has gifted us, the mysteries revealed to us and those that are yet to be revealed. 1 Corinthians 4 from the ESV. This is how 
one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Okay. So let's just look at a few of the other things that we could say we are called to be stewards of. So starting with finances, creation, nature, we've talked about these two things. They are on the list still. I just wanted to make that clear. I haven't taken them off the list. They're on the What about our family, our children? I think this is something that most of us would be pretty good at. We take good care of our family and we do it quite naturally. But nonetheless, it's important as part of our call to be stewards. What about the immediate area where you live? Basingstoke as a whole or other more specific areas of community that you might be involved in? The poor and needy, it's one of the biggest examples of Jesus was surely his care and compassion for the poor and the needy amongst us. And similarly with refugees and those who are displaced. What about our friends? Again, that's probably something that most of us would do quite naturally, but perhaps sometimes it's easy to get busy and miss those opportunities to catch up and show that you care. What about this one? Our skills and our talents. We all have things that God has given us. Are we using them in the right way? What about our spiritual gifts? Are we being responsible stewards for our spiritual gifts, exercising them regularly, using them responsibly? What about that one? I'm sure I've missed some. You could probably add to that list, but the point is that the kind of stewardship described in Genesis as God's plan for mankind extends beyond the obvious. It's wider than you might previously have thought. We're going to pick up on a couple of these. But first, I want to clarify something. You see, I don't think that stewardship is best understood as the world sees it. The world sees it as an obligation, a duty, maybe even a responsibility. But biblical stewardship should be a heart attitude. It's a spiritual lens through which we look at things that surround us. It influences our responses and our reaction to the things that we see and experience. And that, in turn, impacts on our own health, both mentally and physically. So I want to look at uh, a little more closely at two things from that list, both of which I think we do well in part. So the first one, our neighborhood, our community. What do you think of your neighborhood? What do you think of Basingstoke? Is it a good place to live? Bad place to live? How many of you think of Basingstoke not as just the place that you live, but as a gift? Challenging. I was greatly encouraged to see the pile of food that was brought as an offering last week. It's just the latest in a long list of examples of how this church are great at being stewards of our community. Things like food bank, 
street pastors, the safe, town chaplaincy, English lessons and games afternoons for the asylum seekers, so many other things that I'm sure I've missed, and I apologize if I have. But you can fill in the blanks yourselves. So many things that we get involved in that show the love of God to our community. So just by a quick show of hands, real quick show of hands, who is involved in either one of these things or something else that I've missed off that list? Okay, take a look around. Look at those people who've got their hands up because these people are great ambassadors for the things that they're involved in. If you ask them what they're involved in, they will talk about it ad nauseum (laughs) because they're passionate about it. That's why they're involved. So if you aren't currently involved in something like that, then please do take a look around those people that had their hands up, after this, go and speak to one of them you like the look of, doesn't look too threatening, and ask them about it and see if that's something that you might get involved in too. And what about this one? How many of you think of the church as a gift? Now, over the years, I've had several different attitudes towards church. In my youth, it was probably more often than not an interruption to my weekend. It was also and inescapably family. If I'm being honest, it has at more times than I'd like to admit been a burden, a bit of a chore, maybe even hard work. It has been a comfort, an education, a place of respite. And it was, importantly, the place I found love. Not just God's love, but also the love of my wife. I came to realize when I was writing this that actually I can't say with all honesty, hand on my heart, that I have ever thought of the church as a gift. But it is. The more I think about it, the more apparent that becomes. So I'm publicly going to repent of that today. And from now on, I will see the church as a gift. Because it's given to each one of us as a means of encouragement, of teaching, of support. A place where we can come together to praise God. To give thanks, like we've already done this afternoon. But like all gifts, we have to be careful to be good stewards of it. Hang on, doesn't that fall on the shoulders of the leaders and those privileged enough to be given a microphone? No, it does not. They carry a special responsibility for the care of the church, yes, but every single member of the church is a steward of the church. And it's your responsibility to care for it to nurture it and support it. This is not a spectator sport. It's not a consumer activity. If that's what you want, you're in the wrong place. This is a family, a gift to us as believers. And if it doesn't always fit your concept of what we prefer, whether that be time of day, worship selection, or who the preacher is, then so be it, because the odds are that if it wasn't what you needed today, it was what somebody else did. We need to be good stewards of the church, people.
So I said earlier that stewardship is a heart attitude and a spiritual lens. But how do we develop this? So here's four steps. And for some inexplicable reason, I have numbered them five, six, seven, eight. (laughs) Very bad joke. Sorry. It's understanding that it's part of who we are. So if you can remember back 10, 15 minutes ago when I started talking, I said that I see Genesis 1 as a blueprint for God's original design and subsequently ultimate direction for mankind. Genesis 1 makes it clear that stewardship is a key part of who we are as the children of God, so it's an important starting point. The next one is seeing what's around us in a different light. So as a reminder, the definition of stewardship is the careful and responsible management of something entrusted to one's care. Something entrusted to one's care is often described as, also described as a gift. Not a present, but a gift. And it's in this sense that I use the word that it's a gift from God. Now it's not easy to see everything uh, as a gift. Not all gifts are shiny, perfect. Not all gifts are necessarily desirable. But making that leap from seeing things as possessions or burdens to seeing things as a gift is really important. And it's vital even if we're going to have a stewardship mindset. Understanding that we're broken, and so is our attitude. Last week, Dan mentioned that we're broken. And when we were discussing this series, it's something that Eric and I were also very keen on communicating We started looking at Genesis 1 as a blueprint of how things should be. But we all know that when we look around, it isn't that way. It doesn't look like that anymore. Now, traditionally, that separation event that set us on a different path is known as the fall. It's a term that served us well and has significant merit, but I think it places an unhealthy emphasis on us. As if we fell out of favor with God, so things don't go our way anymore. And it's up to us to somehow climb back into his good book so things can be perfect for us again. I'd perhaps be so bold as to suggest a different way of looking at it. If we look at the consequences of that event, what we see is that it caused a fracture. A fracture in our relationship with God, yes. But what we see is that that relationship was at the very center of how creation was made to work. So that fracturing then extends beyond just our relationship with God and into our relationship with the world and in all its physical and spiritual glory. But how does this help? Well, Dan brought in an ornamental glass object. I wasn't quite sure what it was, but it was glass and it's a thing. And it was made a whole piece out of fractured pieces. Now, I thought he was going to do that. I'm sure you've seen that before. Um, This is the Japanese art of kintsugi. Uh, It's an approach to repairing pottery using lacquer mixed with gold, turning something that was broken and useless into something that is better and more beautiful than before. 
It's important because of our response to understanding that we're broken. You see, we can take this approach, which is, God help me because I'm broken. Make me into something new and beautiful. Or we can go, uh, yeah, I'm not very good at that um, because I'm broken, so it's all right because I'm broken. I'm just not very good at it. I think it's better the other way around. And the last step is about accepting that it's not about doing it all, but doing what we can. This is really important because it would be very easy to take all of these things that I've said, take that list, and go away feeling that you have to be a perfect example of humanity, fix all the problems in the world, and care for every issue. That's neither right, nor is it healthy, and it's certainly not well-being. We can't fix everything. But neither can we simply say, well, I'm a good steward of my, steward of my finances, so that's enough. Or, I really care about the environment, and I always recycle, so that's my thing. So what we need to do is develop a healthy and honest view of what it means to do what we can. I think probably a good way of doing this is to genuinely ask yourself this question. Is it because I can't do something? Or is it because I won't do something? Or is it because I can't be bothered to do something? For this, I draw some inspiration from Mark 12. So Mark 12 says, 41 to 44, says, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything. All she had to live on. Now don't mistake this as a simple example of preaching generosity and tithing to the church. Although it does express that principle, it's talking at its heart about the attitude of the widow versus the attitude of the rich people. For the rich, throwing in large amounts so that everyone could see them, the attitude was about being seen to be generous, and yet they probably only gave a fraction of what they could have done. The widow, on the other hand, was about giving all she could, although it was only a fraction of what the rich people gave. So as we close, I want to come back to this list of things or areas where we're required to be good stewards. I want us to take a quiet moment of reflection to check in with ourselves on how we think we're doing on being stewards in each one of these areas. And remember, when I say how we're doing, I mean how we're doing against, measured against our own capacity and capability, not against others who may have more than us. This isn't an exercise in beating yourself up because you don't measure up to this, this person or that person. It's about being honest with yourself 
and with God. So for the sake of time, we're just going to skip over this last bit a little bit, but I would just encourage you to look at that list and just reflect on your thing. Uh, Could we just mute the sound from the laptop for a second? Thank you. So one of the things that I've done is I've just put together a couple of different places, signposts really, um, because I'm not an expert. And if you're struggling in a couple of areas or you want to know more, there's some good places that you could go. So for finances, Christians Against Poverty, Money Lifeline, um, they're great places to go if you need some expert advice on being good stewards with your finances. Creation or nature, there's some great places. Natural Basingstoke, Greener Basingstoke, both organizations for the local area. ClimateStewards.org is a Christian organization, uh, more global in its outlook, but some really good principles on there. And then these ones that I showed you before for the community. But uh, yeah, we'll leave it at that.